is often pain or frustration or confusion or a deep longing for something that satisfies, that drives us to pursue or try to discover who Jesus is. Maybe that's some of you here today. I don't know that I've ever heard anyone tell me in all my years serving here at Desert Springs, the reason I showed up to church today for the very first time in my entire life is because everything is awesome. Things are going so well, I thought maybe I'd give Jesus a try. That has not happened yet, although if that's you, I would love to meet with you. It is usually pain, frustration, a deep longing for something more that drives us. And, and what will invariably happen is maybe we'll visit a couple of church services. Maybe if we know someone we work with or we're neighbors with or someone in our family that's part of a church, maybe we'll ask them, hey, do you, I know you go to church. Do you, you know, can I go with you? Maybe that's some of you here today. Maybe you've been in a, a community group with some of your neighbors or friends and heard them talking about Jesus, wondering if he is what he says he is. And maybe in the process of discovering Jesus, you have picked up a Bible or downloaded the Bible app on your phone and you've begun to read and you begin to think to yourself, this is really weird. And your frustration is growing because there's all this crazy stuff that's going on in the Bible and, and things that just don't seem to make any sense and things that you're asking yourself, are, are you really expecting me to believe this? Come on. Now maybe you've got a New Testament, and you've picked it up, you've read, read through the gospel. Maybe you've been uh, reading through the gospel of Mark with us during this study, and this is your first time reading through a gospel, and, and inevitably you've come across these moments where you're like, you have got to be kidding me. This is really weird. I say that all the time. Because there is a lot of stuff in the Bible that doesn't make much sense to me at all, especially when I'm confused as to what the Bible is all about. You see, growing up, my parents, they, they made me go to church. And so if you're, if you're a kid here and, and your parents made you go to church, bro, I know, okay? I'm not going to try to, you know, uh, put glitter on this thing for you. You're just stuck, and I know how that goes, so uh, what I used to do, though, and this was before iPhones and stuff, so you have it easy, guy. I used to sit, we had, we had an older translation of the Bible. I think it was the King's James, King James Version. And I would flip through the Bible trying to find all the words that my mom told me I wasn't allowed to say. Which in the King James, there's a handful of good ones in there. Most of it's in the Older Testament. Uh, if you want to find some really interesting stuff, go, look around Song of Solomon. It's crazy. And I was told in my youth growing up, or, or I learned, or I picked up along the way, this idea that the Bible was predominantly moral stories to help me conform. Or it was inspiration to help me conquer over some sort of hurdle. Uh, the stories would go like this. You know, they would say, hey, you know, there's the story of David and Goliath. You know, David faced his giant and slayed his giant, and you too, you can face the bullies in your life. 
And I was like, well, I'm going to need some weapons like David. They didn't give those out, which was weird. Or the story goes like, you know, Daniel in the face of the lion's den. He faced, he stood for what was right, even in the face of adversity. So too you can stand up to the wrongs that you're facing as a 10-year-old. And sometimes it was just downright horribly applied like this. Moses led the people out of Egypt. The least you could do is clean your room. (laughs) And it formed within me this idea that the Bible was primarily about me and my conformity to a moral standard or some sort of spiritual inspiration to help me get through things. The Bible was some sort of magic spiritual book that was predominantly about me. And as I grew and matured, which we haven't arrived yet, by the way, at maturity, but I'm in the process. I got more and more frustrated with the Bible because I would ask questions of the Bible. Should I take this job? I'd open, I'd do the the Bible roulette, open up to this page, slay the Amalekites. Okay, I don't want to do that. What other job should I take? Should I marry this woman? What should I do? Where should I move? And I slowly came to realize the Bible actually isn't about me. Now, my name's Caleb, and there is a character named Caleb in the Bible, so there really is, like, my name in there, but it's not me. That was frustrating to me because I would often want the Bible to be about me because I loved it when everything was about me. And so I grew frustrated. I grew angry with the Bible. I found it to be distasteful. I found that it contradicted my will because there's something alive on the other side. What is the Bible all about? That's going to be our question for the day. What is the Bible all about? And the answer, one of the false answers is you. It is not about Now, it can impact you and the stories that are held within it and the power that you find it pointing to, that can transform your life. But the Bible is not, at the end of the day, about you. You're not the star of the show. Now, there are some of us here who are still trying to figure this whole Jesus thing out. And we're saying things like, man, I don't even know what I think about the Bible. I'm not even sure what I think about Jesus. And I just want to encourage you uh, in something. I want you to listen to me carefully because this is going to make a lot of the Christians in the room nervous. You ready? Here we go. You do not need to believe in the Bible in order to establish or to find a relationship with Jesus. You do not need to decide what you think about the scriptures before you enter into a relationship with Jesus. You do not need to first Decide what you think about the Bible and then decide what you think about Jesus. So if you open to the scriptures and you open to like Genesis and you're like, wait, some people say the earth is this old. Some people say it's this old. I don't know what I think. You expect me to believe this or that or the other thing. Listen, you may be putting the cart before the horse. Your views on how to understand Genesis must be shaped by what you understand to be true about Jesus, not the other way around. You don't start with Genesis and then find your way towards Jesus. You start with Jesus and then the whole world opens up. What you think about the hard things that you find in Scripture must first 
be founded on what you believe to be true about Jesus. You don't first have to believe in the Bible in order to believe in Jesus. Now, there are many Christians in the room, especially theologians, if there are any professional theologians, and we're very nervous right now because it might sound like Caleb is undermining the scriptures. I'm not, but I'm telling you this, that you can believe that the Bible is what it says it is and not believe in Jesus. You can believe that the Bible's a holy book and not have a relationship with Jesus. And again, this gets back to the bigger point. What is the Bible all about? I'm gonna give you the short answer. You ready? It's not you. What is the Bible all about? Jesus. And trying to figure out what you think about the Bible before you try to figure out what you think about Jesus is like getting a letter from a friend and trying to decide what you think about the, the, the letter first before you establish the relationship with the friend. You've got it backwards. Now, uh, I'm gonna talk to some of the Christians in the room for a minute. Uh, there's this thing, especially, I don't know where it came from, but especially in the West, um, where there is a tendency to love Bible study and love Bible trivia and love the original languages and have an anemic or non-existent relationship with the one to whom the Bible points. There are Bible scholars who love the text and are strangers to the one to whom the text points. This is why we say, you don't first have to decide what you think about the scriptures in order to figure out what you think about Jesus. First, figure out what you think about Jesus and then try to figure out what you think about scriptures. So all that stuff that makes you feel nervous or anxious in the scriptures, let's talk about Jesus first. Because at the end of the day, what's the Bible all about? Okay. And I hope to prove it to you in the next few minutes of our time together. And so what we're going to do is we're going to be in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 9. Uh, I think it's verses 2 through about 10. And we're going to look at this really weird moment in the life of Jesus, especially in the Gospels. It's this really bizarre moment. And in order to understand this moment in the text, we're going to have to do a little backstory. Now, I did want to say, if, if all of this is confusing to you, or you, just, you need someone to talk to, or you want to take a next step towards Jesus, maybe you're here and you're like, yeah, I'm not sure what I think about Jesus. I'm not, I'm not even sure what that would look like in my life. And I've got all these questions about stuff in the Bible. One of the things that we would encourage you to do is that first step in, our discipleship, in the discipleship process, and that is to discover Jesus. One of the best ways to do that is just to meet with someone maybe from Desert Springs, who can coach you along. And so uh, if you would like the opportunity to do that, to meet with someone as you are in the process of discovering Jesus, you can visit the Direct and Connect after the service. You go through these doors, off to the left, there's big signs that say Direct and Connect, and they would love to help connect you with a coach. This is someone who uh, has been following Jesus for a season, and they would love the opportunity to meet with you help you find answers to the questions you're looking for, maybe even give you some bigger, broader questions for you to consider. Uh, there's no sales pitch. There's no, there's no hard sell. This is an easy, casual meeting with one of the coaches from Desert Springs. We'd love to have that opportunity to connect you with the coach as you're trying to figure out what it is that you think about Jesus. Again, visit Direct and Connect. Now, in order to understand Mark chapter 9, we first have to understand the four-part story of God's work in the cosmos. The Bible is 
<clears throat> divinely selected and inspired explanations of God's work in human history. The Bible is the four-part story of God's work in the cosmos, centered around the person and work of Jesus Christ. Now, there's four parts to the story. I'll bet you guys could guess which ones they are. The first part is called creation. In the beginning, Genesis says, God created the heavens and the earth. And God created something out of nothing. And as the crowning glory of all creation, he created people. And people rebelled against God. They replaced God off the throne of their hearts and put themselves on. And so you have the second part in the story. You're never even going to guess what it's called. Fall. Creation, fall. And then there was a long season where God was doing a work in and through the cosmos. And he was bringing about this one particular moment. It was the moment where Jesus Christ was crucified, died, was buried, and rose from the grave, conquering over Satan, sin, and death. And that moment in the story is called redemption. Creation, fall, redemption. And before Jesus finished his work, after his resurrection, before ascending into heaven, he told his followers, he told his people, one day I will return and I will restore all that which is broken. And that fourth part is called what? Restoration. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. Now in the middle, right, between part two and three, between fall and redemption, you have this long period of time. It looks long to us. And much of that period of time is encapsulated in what we tend to call the Old Testament, or another way to put it, the Hebrew Scripture. You have creation, fall in Genesis 1, 2, and 3, and then after that you have this whole span of time where God is working in very particular ways to bring about redemption. You want to know what the Old Testament's about? It's about Jesus. Why? Because the whole Bible is about what? Jesus. Now, this is the story of the cosmos, but I want to lean into this moment between fall and redemption. And there's two key figures. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do something here. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to talk about these two figures. I want you to go with me. And then when we get to Mark chapter 9, I would like for you, collectively, we might discover that there are some connections here. And uh, have you guys ever seen one of those, like, um, science fiction movies or a mystery movie, and, like, in the last 10 minutes of the movie, all the pieces start falling together, and you go like this, oh! Ever, ever, happened, to, ever happened to you guys before? Right, you're watching the TV show, all the, like, it's like they're solving a caper, right? And, like, they, all the little pieces are coming together, and then right at the end, it's revealed that it's, you know, Moriarty. And you go what? Oh! Right? You made a connection. We might find an opportunity to do that today. We'll see. But first, I would like for us to practice. On the count of three, we're going to go, oh! Ready? One, two, three. Oh! That was good, but we could do better. And we're going to do better on the count of three. One, two, three. Oh! Excellent. You guys are primed and ready to go. Now, in that four-part story of creation, fall, redemption, restoration, in the middle between fall and redemption, there are these promises that God gives. And he is moving. The Old Testament records God moving and shaping history in, the, in our history, 
of the cosmos, shaping it towards this one moment of redemption. And one of the key characters that you find is this person named Moses. Okay, so Moses was made popular during this moment that we often call the Exodus. The people of God were held captive. Excuse me, the people of God were held captive. God uses Moses to redeem the people out of captivity for them to find freedom. And so Moses, when we think of Moses, we think the Exodus, we think people leaving. And here's what's interesting. After they left Egypt, they were wandering around the desert and God was leading them in a very peculiar way. The way that God's glory became manifest, the way that you saw God in your midst was a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. So if you were to walk up to a person who followed God during the Exodus and say, hey, what, what does God look like? They would say, a cloud. You with me? So what does God look like? God looks like a cloud. So during the Exodus, Moses, God is using Moses to lead the people out of Egypt. And here's what else is interesting, is as they were wandering around, they had to put God somewhere. Isn't that a silly thing to say? But God's glory become manifest, needed to dwell somewhere. And so one of the things that they were instructed to do was to build this giant tent. It was this magnificent tent. Often uh, times we would call it something like the tabernacle. Isn't that a funny word? Just big, ornate tent, okay? So they built this tabernacle, this big, ornate tent, and that's where the glory of God would dwell, right? Because we got to shield the glory of God from us. We don't want to get too close. Because one of the things that they knew is that if you get uh, a completely unadulterated view of the glory of God, you die. For his glory, we, our, our, our bodies cannot handle his full glory. And so Moses, he is famous for the Exodus, but there's this other piece too that he's famous for. Uh, he's famous for the law. So we're gonna think about the Exodus, we're gonna think about the law. And the law was when God spoke to his people, said thou shalt and thou shalt not and these types of things, right? In fact, uh, I think we have a picture. Yes. No, that's not Moses, is it? No, that's ridiculous. That's not Moses. That's Mel Brooks. That's Moses. No, neither of those are Moses, right? But Moses is made famous through the Ten Commandments, the giving of the law. And he came down with the tablets. He said, this is what God says. And what did he come down from? Do you remember? He came down from a high mountain. You with me? So the way that Moses met God was he went up onto a high mountain. You got me? And how did the people of God see God's presence? Cloud, right? And what did they put the cloud in? Tabernacle. Okay, there's a second character I want us to uh, recognize. So Moses was very early on in the people of Israel. Later on, after a kingdom was established, the uh, people of God were rebelling against God. They were worshiping false gods. They were going each to their own way. And there was this prophet named Elijah. Now Elijah, uh, his story is recorded in the first Kings. And Elijah's like this like this hardcore prophet, right? He, he was famous. He became more and more famous, especially after uh, his ministry was done. And Elijah would constantly be calling the people back to God. He would be yelling like prophets do. He would be yelling, people, turn from your sins and turn back to God. So where Moses was the one who gave the law and said, this is God, what God wants. This is what God expects. The prophets, like Elijah, would say, people, Turn from your sins and turn back to God. Now, what's interesting about Elijah is he too 
caught a glimpse of the glory of God. You see, Moses, when he was up on a high mountain, he told God, God, I'm leading these people, and it's super frustrating, and they're all against me, and none of them are listening. I need to see you, right? We've got the cloud. I've got the voice. I've got the burning bush, but I want to see your glory. God says, you cannot see my glory in its fullest and live. But what I'm going to do, Moses, is I'm going to pass you by, and you can catch a glimpse of my glory. And Moses did. The interesting thing is, so did Elijah many years later. Elijah, in a very hard place in his life, was shown the glory of God, and the text says that God, his glory, passed him by. He got a glimpse of God. The other interesting thing about Elijah is there's not a ton written about him, but there are some really interesting things, like uh, one of the things that God did through Moses was um, raise people from the dead. He brought a child back to life. He also multiplied food for this widow through bread and oil. Elijah's life is interesting, but his uh, reputation was huge at the time of Jesus. And so we have these two key figures, and they're generally referred to as the law and the prophets. Moses is an embodiment of the law, and Elijah is an embodiment of the prophets. And if you were to ask a Jewish person that lived around the time of Jesus, they would not use the word Bible. They might use the word scripture, but if they were going to refer to the word of God, what we call the Old Testament, they would refer to it as this, the law and the prophets. It's the way that they divided up the text, right? So if you were to refer to the whole text, you'd, you'd say what? It's the law and the prophets. That's our Older Testament. Now, this four-part story of the universe is what compels us to live as we do. For those of us that are still trying to figure this whole Jesus thing out, I hope one of the things that you see is we're constantly looking for ways to use uh, the blessings and talents that God has given to us to serve and to bless others. It's one of the reasons why we do Love Our Schools Day. And in fact, on our next steps, one of the key things that you see is uh, serving compassionately. And I just wanted to take a quick minute to say thank you so much to those of you who have signed up for Love Our Schools Day. It really is a way that we as a church family get to live in light of this story in blessing our community. But I also wanted to say this. We have been, uh, as a church family, growing over the last few months, uh, which has presented an awful, a, a lot of opportunities for folks to serve and to use their gifts, talents, and resources to serve. And we've been praying. We've got about uh, 50 different slots of uh, areas where people can serve that we've been praying for God to provide. And many of those are filling up. And I just want to say, for those of you that serve here at Desert Springs, whatever your capacities, thank you so much. It is a key way for us to show and to embody this story. That the story of the gospel, the story of all scripture is not primarily about me, it's about Jesus. And living in light of that truth causes us, when we live in light of that truth, it causes us to live generously and to compassionately serve. And I just wanna say thank you so much to those of you who serve here in and through Desert Springs and maybe outside of the Desert Springs church family, but in our community. There are so many different great ways uh, for folks to serve. If you'd like to know more information on how you might want to serve here uh, at Desert Springs or in our community, visit Direct and Connect. I'd love the opportunity to help you take that next step as a disciple of Jesus. And then I wanted to say one more thing. On October 28th, if you call Desert Springs your church home, I strongly encourage you. In fact, I'm going to ask you to do me a solid and be here on October 28th. 
I think God is taking us into a, a very cool direction as a church family, and, and we just want to share what we think are some of those next steps for us as a church family and then for us as individual disciples. We, we not only want to study what it means to be a disciple, we want to live in light of that truth. So if you could be here on October 28th, I would encourage you. It's a pivotal moment for our church family. That's October 28th at 9.30 or 11. And so we have this four-part story of the universe, and who are the two key figures that we were talking about? The first one was Moses, who's like the quintessential person uh, uh, with the law. And who was the second person? Elijah, Moses and Elijah. And they existed in this middle moment between creation, fall, redemption, restoration. They existed right here. And they didn't know exactly how that redemption was going to look. They had no idea what God was going to do. They knew God was going to do a work, but they had no clue how it was going to happen. And one of the things that the Gospels, like the Gospel of Mark, one of the things that the Gospel of Mark shows us is how that redemption takes place. And so we're going to zoom in now on the Gospel of Mark, chapter 9. Here we go. We'll put it up here on the screen. This is Mark 9, verses 2 through 4. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John and led them up a high mountain. Oh boy, we missed it. Because we knew that if we were going to make a connection here, like at the end of these science fiction or mystery movies, we were going to go like this, yo! And I don't, I vaguely remember, like, where did Moses, like, meet God? He was on some piece of furniture. Uh, it was, um, was it a hill? No, it wasn't a hill. Was it a valley? No, it wasn't a valley. What was it? Oh, it was a high mountain. That's right. Because where do you go to meet God? If you're a Jewish person living around the time of Jesus, you would generally say, you don't go down into the valley, you go where? Up onto the high mountain. We're gonna try this again. And if you make a connection, you just yell out, yo, you with me, fam? After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves to be alone. He was transfigured in front of them. What's that word mean? Good question, we'll answer it here in a minute transfigured in front of them, and his clothes became dazzling, extremely, uh, not bedazzled, okay? I know you guys are at Hobby Lobby all the time, not bedazzled, just dazzling, extremely white as no launderer on earth could whiten them. And Elijah, oh, oh, wait, 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 go back, go back, go back, go back. Elijah appeared to them with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Now we have a picture of this moment. That's the, it's the transfiguration. Or it's a screenshot from the movie, Lord of the Rings. But you get the idea, right? What does dazzling apparel mean? Probably something along these lines, right? And James and John and, and Leonidas and uh, whoever the heck that person is, Gimli, is that one of them? Am I, am I with you, fam? Okay, see, I got you. Uh, this would have been super relevant 10 uh, years ago. So uh, let's go back to the text. So, dazzling, white apparel. Now, where are they? They're on a high mountain. And Peter, James, and John are with Jesus. And they've already said, you're the Messiah, you're the promised one. And then you have this moment where it's like, Wah! and Jesus is there with two individuals. Who? Moses and Elijah, right? Now, why is this happening? Here's a couple of interesting things. If you have the text in front of you, one of the things that you'll notice is how not big of a deal Mark's, Mark makes out of this. Like, Mark's like, yeah, he was transfigured and he was dazzling and some laundry stuff. Anyways, and he, just keeps go he just keeps going on. 
Like if this happened to me, I would be writing more than a couple of paragraphs. But we know Mark is generally brief in his style. So what is Mark showing us here? One of the things he's showing us here is what we said at the beginning. What is this all about? What is the Bible all about? It's all about Jesus. Why are Moses and Elijah there with Jesus? One of the things that were shown here is this truth, that Jesus is not a helpless patsy. Here's what I mean. Up until this point in time, if you were to look at Jesus, what would he look like? Up until this moment, if you were just to look at Jesus, what would he look like? Average, just a guy? Would there be anything spectacular about him? Would there be anything to make anyone go like, woo, right? You just look at him, and he looks just like an average guy. And we know, if we fast forward in the Gospel of Mark, we know where we're headed. We're headed to a crucifixion. But one of the things that Mark is doing here, and one of the things that God is doing in this moment to Peter, James, and John, is he's giving a little bit of a taste, a little bit of the glory, a little bit of the passing by, a little glimpse into what really is going on. You with me? What is going on here? God is giving us a small, a little glimpse at the cosmic power of who Jesus is. He's not just some helpless patsy who gets betrayed. He's in control. There's something more, too. Let's keep going on in the story. Let's take a look at the next text. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us set up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. TV timeout. How did he know it was Moses and Elijah? I have no idea. Maybe name badges? (laughs) One for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. Because he did not know what to say since they were what? Terrified. How many of you are nervous talkers? Like you get real nervous, you're in a a, a tough spot, and you're just like, talk, 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 talking's good. We should talk more. Let's talkity-talkity-talkity-talk, right? You just don't know quite what to do. I'm I'm imagining Peter might be kind of doing one of those things, like, let's uh, build some tents. Now, why is Peter terrified? Well, one of the things that people like Peter knew was that if you come into the presence of God, you're going to die. It's interesting. What does he say we should build? What does it say here? Shelters? It's an interesting way to translate that word. Another way to translate that is three tents or three tabernacles. It may be that Peter, actually in the midst of his nervous anxiety and his terror, might actually recognize, you know, we need to put you in a tabernacle, not for you, not for your protection, but for whose protection? Mine, because I don't want to be dying today up on this high mountain. People can't hear us screaming. Let's take a look at the next part. A cloud appeared. Wait a minute. In the Exodus, like that thing with Moses, how did the glory of God become manifest among the people? It was a um, mist, tornado. What was it? Cloud. A cloud appeared. Now, if you're Peter, yeah, well, let's do it again. I'm sorry. 
That's all right. You know, that's totally my fault. If uh, a cloud appeared. Yeah. Like, bros, if, if you're Peter and you're like, we got to get you guys shielded, and then a cloud starts creeping in, you're dead. Like, you're like, all right, I give up. A cloud appears, overshadowing them. This is terrifying. And a voice from the cloud, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. Now, this is interesting. Uh, up until this moment, remember the picture of Gandalf? Up until this moment, we have been getting descriptions of Jesus visually. Notice that God the Father does not say, look to him or look at him. What does he say? Listen to him. Now, what's interesting is this moment, this transfiguration where Jesus is transfigured to reveal his glory to some degree, is in between two critical points where Jesus doesn't show but he tells them, I am going to be betrayed into the hands of our enemies and they will kill me and I will die and be buried and I will rise. Listen, don't just see, but listen. Suddenly looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them except for Jesus. Now there's a few ways to take this and I'm gonna give you my opinion, okay? So, are we all in agreement that what I'm about to say is just my opinion? I think that this is a visual illustration showing us what we already know to be true, namely that the law and the prophets are ultimately about Jesus. Jesus is the only one that remains. You'll notice that what Peter did, Peter put on a pedestal all three, Moses, Elijah, and Jesus. Do you remember? He said, we gotta build all three of y'all some tabernacles. Because all three of y'all are glorious, but then two fade away and one remains. I think this is a visual representation of what we already know. What is the Bible all about? What are the law and prophets all about? When you read that weird stuff in the Older Testament, at the end of the day, what's it pointing to? Jesus. As you engage with the Bible, recognize that it's not ultimately about you. It's all about Jesus. And by the way, if the Bible's ultimately only about you, it's powerless. The word of God is powerless if it's ultimately about you. But take heart, for it is all about Jesus. Let's take a look at the next text. As they were coming down the mountain, he ordered them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. Now, this kept... Uh, they kept this word to themselves, questioning what rising from the dead meant. And of course, we look at that statement. We watch them walking down the hill saying, what did he mean about rising from the dead? Because they had no framework. They had no framework. You see, the four-part story of the universe is this. You guys remember it? Take a look. We'll put it up here on the screen. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. Where were they at the time of the transfiguration? They're walking down the mountain waiting for redemption to come and they have no idea what it's going to look like. Most of them think it's a military coup or a political power play. They have no framework for how God is going to redeem the world. And so Jesus tells them, I will die and then I will rise. And they're walking down the mountain saying, what does he mean? You see, the whole of the scriptures is written to help us understand and internalize the four-part story of the universe of creation, fall, redemption, restoration. 
centering around the person and work of Jesus Christ, and then as his disciples being called to live in light of that story. Now, what story are you living? Let me reframe it. What would it look like for you if you lived moment by moment in light of this story? How would that impact your relationships? How would that shape your wallet? How would that impact your education? What would that look like in your workplace? What would that look like in the voting booth? What would that look like as you communicate with others in public ways? What would it look like for you to live in light of this story? We are all living a story. For many of us, the temptation is to make ourselves the center of the story. And yet we're here, either because of pain, or dissatisfaction, or confusion, or frustration, and we're wondering if this Jesus person has anything for us. And I'm here to tell you that the four-part story of the universe is this, that God loves you and he's created you with inherent dignity, worth, and value, for you are made in his image. But you and I, all of us in this room, have rebelled and fallen. We've turned from God and turned to our own ways, replacing God on the throne of our hearts with ourselves. And because of that, our relationship with our God is broken, and we are fallen. And so what are we to do? Well, one of the answers that many people give us is, be a good person. But of course, being good never quite adds up because even in our being good, there's wrong motives and there's this silly idea that I can outwork all of my evil. And so here we are, standing condemned and apart from our creator. Some of you feel that right now. And there is good news for us. For the third part of the story is redemption. That Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, has died at the hands of his own creation, paying the penalty for our sin, and he didn't stay dead. If he did, this is all stupid. If Jesus did stay dead, you're all idiots. By the way, that's biblical. Look it up, Paul says it. Jesus didn't stay dead. Three days later, he rose from the grave, conquering over Satan's sin and death, and he calls everyone, no matter who you are, what you've done, where you're from, what you look like, what you behave like, he calls every single person, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, for I will give you rest. Turn from your sin and turn to Jesus. Find in him the redemption you've been looking for. And here now in this moment, as we live in light of that truth, we await his coming restoration. How many of you know that the world remains broken? Some of that brokenness is what brought you here today. And the promise of Jesus is this, his work's not done. He will return one day and he will restore all that which is broken. But in the meantime, he calls all, all who have tasted that redemption to proclaim the good news and to live in light of it. And so I ask you again, what would it look like for you to live in light of this story? 
How would that change you? How would that shape you? What story are you living? At the end of the day, the scriptures are not about you. They're about Jesus. Praise God. Would you join me as we pray?